Today is October 24th, 2019, and this is episode three. I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. The South Dakota Catholic Conference represents the bishops of South Dakota on matters of public policy, providing explanations of how church teaching applies to issues of our day. Our topic today is Abraham Lincoln. We're going to visit about the virtues of prudence and moderation. We're going to explore the ways in which Lincoln's thought on labor and property resonates with the church's social doctrine. Joining me today, I'm really excited. Joining me in studio is Dr. John Schaff. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Schaff. Welcome. Or, well, I'm very glad to be here. I almost welcome myself. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a great pleasure to, to have you here. Uh, I've got your book in front of me, Abraham Lincoln's Statesmanship and the Limits of Liberal Democracy, mm-hmm. which is going to be the springboard for our for our talk today. Um, but it's uh, it's just a great great to have your I think July publication. Yeah, it's late July. Yep. As a springboard for our conversation, because uh, not only are you an esteemed author, professor of political science, you happen to be uh, a Catholic mm-hmm. uh, living in South Dakota. I think uh, worshiping up in Aberdeen at Sacred Heart. Sacred Heart. Um, so a shout ooh, out to ooh. Aberdeen. Yeah, there we go. And um, teaching uh, in some really interesting areas mm-hmm. to listeners of faith and politics, either currently teaching or have in the past on. American government, uh, international relations, the presidency, you American bet. political thought, and yep. philosophy of religion. Yes. Um, which, for me, I don't know if I've mentioned this when we visited in the past, but I was a political science major uh, in college. So this I, is kind of I like won't hold it against you. taking me right back uh, yeah. to the glory days. Yep. And tell me if this is true or not for you and your students, but I kind of felt like some of my contemporaries, we sort of shifted or, or split, if you will, you have like the real wonks on the one hand who love the s- statistics and the data, and then guys that were a bit more like me, they just love diving into the political philosophy and some of the more the statesmen of political past. Is that is that true? Yeah, I think that's true. Though you know, the way we do things at Northern, on the whole, there are some exceptions, but on the whole, uh, is we tend to take that latter approach. Is that uh, my colleague? Um, Ken Blanchard and I are both um, very much in the humanities uh, uh, methodology of approaching our discipline, which is which is the minority in the discipline, because most people are more what you say about you know, the, the first type of person, like the policy, the number crunching, uh, they can't wait till the next data set comes out uh, so they can run a regression analysis on it. But I think we we tend to take, uh, as I say, a more humanistic view of things. And so when Aristotle defines politics as how we ought to live with one another, that's kind of our our approach to it. And I don't dismiss the other the other uh, view of it, but I think that's how we approach it. And our students, I think, really appreciate it. And we can put them. We you know we have statistics classes on campus, and you know, and I teach classes on presidency and Congress that are a little bit more, if you will, wonky. Uh, that you, you get into kind of the nuts and bolts of how these things uh, work. Uh, but I think our approach to the the subject is what we would call a more normative uh, way of approaching it. And it's sort of illustrated uh, in the book. Yeah. And that's, I find that approach just so life-giving because our it seems that there's a tendency to want to reduce everything to just data and statistics and then never move on past that. We even see that in just like the American pastime baseball, where it's just like there's a statistic for everything, but it's just like 
um, tell me about the roar of the crowd and, and let's stand up for the seventh inning stretch and what's the meaning in this? So I think they just take Yeah, a- I, I think so. In fact, the, the word you use, reduced, uh, you know, the, the, the question is whether the human experience can be reduced. We call it you now a reductionist way of looking at things can be reduced to data. And that's, that's the problem if we are uh, you know, a languaged a- animal uh, with a conscience and a soul, then how, how do you capture that in a number? And so the discipline sometimes tries to do that uh, with better and worse results. Uh, but even the better results aren't really capturing the reality of what it is to be a human political animal. Uh, and, and so you have to go th- to whether it's philosophy or you know, I've taught classes on politics and literature. What can we learn from literature? I've got a class coming up uh, in the spring and a, and a book coming out in December on politics and film. Uh, what can we learn from film? There's actually a little bit of literature in that book as well. Uh, but that's that I think is, is, a, is a richer, more capacious way of looking at the human experience. And I think as, as, as political beings, we can't simply look at numbers. I, I have nothing against the numbers. I think there are a lot of truths that, that can be ta- taught through data. But I think if we want the whole of the truth, we want to look at the whole person, we can't, we can't reduce ourselves to that. Yeah, and you're, you're slipping in some Aristotle there with this man as a, uh, an animal who speaks. Yes. Which is going to be a great segue to actually jump into prudence and, vert, uh, prudence and moderation. Yep. But quick, before we get there, can you just give the listeners a sense, like, what prompted you to write this book? Well, I'd been studying Lincoln for a long time. In fact, many, many moons ago, more than I'd care to admit, I wrote a dissertation on Lincoln, which makes up mostly the second half of the book, which is looking at domestic policy uh, and the Lincoln administration, whether Lincoln was as aggressive a leader in making what we would say non-war policy as he was as commander-in-chief. But really what I was thinking about when I started really putting a bunch of stuff, I'd been writing about Lincoln forever and trying to put it together, and I thought, what's the hook? And the hook is that the I, I get a strong sense that uh, there's a lot of anxiety about American democracy and whether we can maintain and keep this democracy. And I think that one of the issues facing us is the, as the subtitles uh, of the book suggests, is that we seem to be uh, bereft of statesmen who ask, in one sense, more of us uh, than than simply our votes and our self-interest, but also lead us in a sense, I think, one of the ways in which our democracy is sort of uh, uh, off off kilter is the fact that we, you know, in, in a democracy, you know, there's the old saying, uh, the voice of the people is the voice of God, right? Vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. But we all know that's not really true. Uh, and but But what it means is that when ultimately, if we're going to limit ourselves, those limits have to be self-imposed. And you know the, 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 the textbook definition of tyranny is a government that acts without limits. And that's true if it's government of, of one person or if it's a government of the people in general, of you know, 330 million Americans or the 160-something that, that will vote for president next year. Um, uh, we, th- those limits have to come from ourselves. And so the role of the statesman is to teach limits uh, and so that's why what the book is about is, as we will talk about in a second, is prudence and moderation as 
as a limit and the natural rights as a kind of limit. Uh, What do we think of limited government? What is the actual, what are the legitimate powers of government? What's an economy supposed to do? And then they say that that's mostly the first half of the book. And the second half of the book looks at this very specific thing as president. Was Lincoln as aggressive a, a, a leader and kind of non-war policy as he was as commander in chief? And I'll, I'll, I'll give away the ending. Spoiler alert: No, he wasn't as aggressive a leader. He was more deferential uh, to Congress. So that's that's kind of where the book is coming from, generally speaking. So in the in the book again is Abraham Lincoln's statesmanship and the limits of liberal democracy. Chapter one is titled Lincoln and the political virtues of prudence and moderation. And if I may, I just want to just read really briefly to give, sure. give the listeners a sense of, of how you open it. This is the opening line. One of the common complaints in contemporary American politics is the lack of statesmanship on the part of political leadership. Skipping ahead to the next paragraph, part of our frustration is caused by a lack of understanding of fundamental qualities of statesmen. Two central political ideals that govern the statesman are prudence and moderation. So Correct. what are they and what what do we see in Lincoln um, that was particular to him and, and what can we learn from it today? Okay, let's define our terms first, right? So prudence, uh, kind of a one or two sentence definition of prudence. I, now I've got to think of how many sentences I'm going to give. I think it might just be one. Prudence is um, uh, correct reasoning about how to achieve good ends. So it, we, we take it for granted that the ends are good. And whether an end is good or bad, I guess this is, I'm throwing some Aristotle at you, is a product of theoretical wisdom. And then how to achieve those ends is the product of practical wisdom, sometimes translated as prudence, right? The, 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 the Greek word in Aristotle is pronounced differently by different people. I would go with phronesis. Some people say phronesis, uh, but it's so it's alternately translated as practical wisdom or prudence. Um, and, and if I can interject just yeah. briefly, because I know we've got listeners who are keeping track in their scorecard at home, paragraph 1806 in the Catholic Catechism says, prudence is the virtue that disposes practical reason to discern our true good in every circumstance and to choose the right means of achieving it. Prudence is right reason in action, writes St. Thomas Aquinas, following Aristotle. Exactly, which is why it's one of the cardinal virtues, right? right. So we've got four cardinal virtues. Hope I get these right. Prudence, courage, temperance. What am I forgetting? Fortitude. Fortitude. There we go. Um, uh, and uh, and moderation, I would say, actually is akin. If you look up, as Chris is now doing, uh, perhaps looking up the definition of temperance. Um, but moderation is is akin because if probably with I bet within the, the 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 catechism's definition of temperance, I might even use the word moderation. In the New Testament, moderation is also called or temperance is also called moderation. Yeah. Or sobriety, paragraph 1809. Yeah, so moderation, I, I define, and I'm drawing from Aristotle, though I think this is consistent uh, with the catechism, is essentially having all good things in the right amount. Mm. Uh, and so like a couple quick examples, like courage as, as a virtue uh, means responding in the right way to fear. Uh, so Aristotle places uh, virtue as a mean between two extremes. So an excess of courage is foolhardiness. A defect of courage is cowardliness. And so how do we, so the example I give in the book is when a household intruder is, is in your house, if it's a man with a gun uh, or wielding a knife, 
perhaps the right thing, leaving aside defense of your loved ones, let's imagine it's just you, maybe the right thing to do is to run. That's the appropriate response to that situation. If you cannot overpower the person, run away. But if the household intruder is a spider and you run away, you are a coward. Whereas if the household intruder is maybe a, 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 a gang of robbers, and if I try to attack them, I'm being foolhardy, right? This is, this is the wrong, I'm not fearful enough. I don't have the prop, uh, appropriate response. Or even like health, you know, what, is, what does it mean to eat healthily? Um, uh, uh, it's having each food group in its proper amount. And then these things are, as I say in the book, virtue is relative, but it's not subjective. Because what that's the whole point is is it'll be relative to who what kind of intruder is in my house that will determine how I respond or if I'm as I am a middle aged man what is healthy for me like what is healthy eating is going to be different than when I was twenty years old or what is proper exercise is different for me than if I was trying to make the Northern State University basketball team right I, I, I exercise would be different. Uh, for me. But it's not subjective. I don't invent internally what the right thing to do is. Uh, but in politics, there are various competing goods. You draw this to, to politics. So like, for instance, in a democracy, we value things like consent, rule of law, liberty, equality, natural rights. And these things sometimes conflict. And so the moderate statesman has to balance those things. And then prudence is one of those virtues he will use to, to correctly determine what time, at what point do I value this one virtue? At what point do I value this other virtue? I, and I give way on some other virtues. Well, in these virtues that we're discussing, and you just mentioned rule of law, in the book you discuss Lincoln's speech to the Young Men's Lyceum, Springfield, Correct. Illinois, 1938. Yep. 1838. Excuse me. Thank, thank you. 1838. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. by 100 years. PhD people. <laughs> oh, there would have been a red mark on my essay to the professor. Yes. But, uh, I mean, this is of contemporary relevance. I was just watching a speech at the Al Smith dinner last week. The speech was given by the retired Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, former four-star Marine general. The Al Smith dinner, for those who don't know, is an annual fundraiser dinner hosted by the Archdiocese of New York to, uh, to raise money for charity. And it's in honor of Al Smith, the first Catholic presidential candidate for a major political party. Um, and the spe in the speech, um, General Mattis draws out some of these same things from mm -hmm. Lincoln's speech to this lyce lyceum in 1838. So maybe just w what's in the speech and what can we take from it even today? You know, it's an amazing speech when you realize that Lincoln— uh, wasn't even 30 years old yet. He was a relatively young man simply serving in as a young lawyer in the Illinois state legislature at that point. And the, the name of the speech is on the perpetuation of our political institutions. And what Lincoln says is that if America collapses, it won't come from without because we're this big country. We got oceans on both sides. We're not going to be invaded. It'll happen from within. And what he sees uh, in his time, and there's, I think there's a lot of good history behind this, is the lack of respect for rule of law and, and the prominence of mob rule. And he gives a couple examples of mobs acting really poorly, one in Mississippi, one in Missouri. I don't think it's an accident that both examples occur in slave states. Um, even though he says this is in both slave and free states, both of his examples are from slave states. Uh, and so he says this is a problem because 
the mob acts passionately. This is an immoderate way to make thing to to make decisions, even though a mob is in some sense very democratic. It's the voice of the people. But but when people get riled up, they act passionately. And so he says there are various errors. There are three problems that come from this. One, a mob is indiscriminate. That's one reason why it's unjust. The second, he says, it encourages the lawless in spirit to become lawless in fact. So I think if all of us look into our souls, we will see that we're a little bit lawless in spirit. That's concupiscence. Amen. Right? Um, and so... Uh, the, the threat of punishment is one of the things, not the only thing, but it's one of the things that, that, that helps us to choose the, the right thing. So, but if we get a sense that I can do bad things and I won't be punished, we're more likely to do bad things. And so Lincoln says, uh, when people see these mobs acting in violation of the law, they start to think, well, I can break the law. And I can get away with it. Why would I bother following the law? Then the third thing he says is that lawlessness, lawlessness corrupts good men. And so when you look around and you see that property and rights are not being protected and you see chaos, it means that, that, that good men will say, why can't we just have someone who will bring order? And you're willing to put up with a certain level of injustice or tyranny simply to bring about order. And so what Lincoln calls for in this kind of this famous passage, which is a little bit uh, over the top, actually, uh, in its rhetoric, uh, uh, he says that we have to make respect for the Constitution specifically and rule of law more generically, the political religion of the people. Uh, and to, as he says, that as as in the Declaration, they dedicated their, 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 uh, their lives and their sacred honor to uh, to the Declaration, so we should do the same uh, to the Constitution and the rule of law. Well, it, and a couple of things that strike me too is just his exhortation. You know, in the face of these wild and furious passions, as he says, um, they they've replaced sober judgment in yeah. his words. Mm-hmm. Which, if we go back to the Catechism, that word sobriety is an analog for for temperance, for moderation. Yeah. Um, I also was really struck. He, he also speaks of using, I can't remember his exact phrase, like cold, hard reason. Do you remember yes. exactly how he yeah, put it? Yeah, uh, well, because uh, he says like reason, cold, hard reason should be, should be our guide. And one, one might almost say that his dedication to reason is unreasonable, uh, which uh, uh, in, a, in a different speech a couple of years later, the Washington Temperance Address, uh, he says, he uses a, an example in that. And that address, the one on temperance, this is from 1842. He says, well, how come men don't wear bonnets in church? Right? And he says, well, there's, there's, there's nothing in scripture that says they shouldn't. And we should point out, by the way, that Lincoln's own religious views were what I would call heterodox. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, he says, there's, though he knew his Bible frontwards and backwards far better than, than most people do today, despite the fact that his own dedication to it was, shall we say, iffy. Um, but he says, there's nothing in scripture, or there's nothing that says it's a sin for a man to wear a bonnet in church. So why doesn't he do it? Because it's unfashionable. <laughs> because public opinion says, don't do it. And so he says, we should do with drink, temperance, with alcohol, uh, what we do with bonnets in church. Make it unfashionable. And he actually says, because the whole speech is, he doesn't think the way to get people not to drink. And Lincoln, I would point out, was pro-temperance and was himself a teetotaler. He did not drink. Right. 
But he said, fiery denunciations don't get anybody to do anything. People don't like to be driven to the right thing. And so he says, this is my, one of my favorite Lincoln quotes, so uh, people get sick of me saying it. He says in that speech, if you would want to persuade a man, you must first convince him that you are his friend. Uh, and so first you have to convince people that you mean them well and calling them names and denouncing them doesn't usually get that. And then to go, this I have a point here, which going back to reason is Lincoln realizes that that you have to shape public opinion, and this is often not per se reasonable. It's not it's not irrational or unreasonable, but it's you have to make a kind of appeal to passion, uh, to our emotions, which is why sometimes we teach ourselves moral lessons using stories, or why Christ speaks in parables is that sometimes a moral point is better illustrated by telling a story that appeals to our hearts than simply appealing to our heads. And so I think Lincoln realizes that in that Lyceum speech, his, his dedication to reason, pure reason, might even be unreasonable. Mm. I, I mean, I could talk about this for, I think, a lot longer, but I do want to get a little bit to, yeah. uh, towards the end of your book, you bring in Pope Leo the Thirteenth, absolutely. Which is just it's it's great. Um, and for um, not everybody may know who Leo the Thirteenth is. He was the Pope from 1878 to 1902, 1903, and he uh, he wrote a, a very well known encyclical called Rerum Novarum, um, and it's the custom that an encyclical is known by its the first two Latin words. It make it means make all things new. I think yeah, it's like on new things. Yeah, on new yeah. things. Yeah. But he's uh, it's an encyclical on on work, essentially, mm-hmm. if we're yep. going to reduce it to one word. Well, how does that make it into the book? What, what's that doing there? Well, ex- well, precisely. I was talking about when I was talking about limits, and I, I gave a real quick summary of, of the book, and I talked about economic limits. And this actually stems from many years ago. I had a, a student in my American political thought class write something about Lincoln spoke a lot, especially in the late 1850s, about labor. And... What is what is appropriate labor? What he called free labor. What does it mean to be a free labor? Obviously, part of that is dealing with slavery. What differentiates slave labor from free labor? And within that, in this, so a student wrote this paper about it, and and she didn't write about this directly, but it made me think this is this is distributivism, all right. Uh, and so one of the theories coming out of Rerum Novarum and then backed up by by uh, other documents in the church, because uh, 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 Pius XI had an encyclical on 40 years, 40 years after, the Centesimus Annus. I hope I got that right. That was it's 100 on a, years. 100 years. That's so, John Paul II. So the first one was Quadrigissimo, quadrigissimo Anno. Uh, Forty years uh, after Rerum Navarro. You know, so I went with the English because I couldn't. I didn't <laughs> want to try to pronounce Quadrissimo. It's we're we're in South Dakota. It's yeah, all good. Yep. Um, and then Centissimus Annus was uh, John Paul's on the hundredth year. Yep. Um, both just pillars in Catholic social teaching. Exactly. And so what what Lincoln's theory of labor is, is that uh, he makes a distinction between free labor, wage labor, and slave labor. And obviously, wage labor is better than slave labor, but it's not free labor. And he basically says that that his his ideal of a labor is someone who is essentially, I'll put it in our terms, these aren't quite Lincoln's terms, someone who both owns capital and labors. And so you know, to cut to the chase, I think what he thinks that the ideal of a free labor is someone who would be like a small proprietor, 
uh, a small farmer, a small shop owner, a small factory owner. And so you are laboring, but you also are the owner. Uh, and so the go- that should be the goal. And so when we work for wages, the goal is to even to build skills, build knowledge, work up a little bit of money, and then go off on our own. Uh, and this is this is consistent, though though not the same. I, I'm not claiming that that Lincoln is 100% with Catholic social teaching, but I think there's a lot of analogy there to this economic theory that comes out of Rerum Navarum, uh, though I don't think Leo ever uses this term, of distributism. And the idea of distributism, which you find a lot of early 20th century Catholic thinking, especially English Catholics like G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, you see it in America, there is a Catholic land movement of the more like the 1930s, 40s, 50s, uh, that has this idea that property should be distributed, thus the word distributism, as evenly as possible. Uh, and that that justice demands that, that capital not dominate labor, and that the best way to do that is to give everybody as much opportunity to own some property, not just like a house, like real estate, but economic property, capital that you use to make your way in life. And so examples of that would be Lincoln himself as a small small firm lawyer. It was him and another guy through most of his career that he's working. He's a, he's, he's a lawyer. He's working. But he also owns his own firm. Right. Right. Or you could see this. And even today, I think an, an analogy would be um, employee-owned businesses. Uh, where even like a, a large business that's employee-owned, like I believe Costco, if I'm not mistaken, is employee-owned, uh, that would be consistent with what Lincoln is talking about is that those employees are working. So I might be you know, stocking the bananas, right. but I'm also, I'm an owner in this operation and that's economic justice. And that's, you know, this encyclical, there are, a lot, there are other ideas that Leo writes of in this encyclical that people may be familiar with maybe the duty of an employer to provide safe working conditions, mm-hmm. uh, a living wage. We've heard that term before. Um, the, the rights of, of workers to collaborate or, yep. or unionize. Well, well it, concepts of both subsidiarity and solidarity. Right. I, I'm trying to remember if he uses those exact terms. I don't think he does. Uh, but nonetheless, the concepts are certainly certainly there. But but where, it's, what's, where we see some, some resonance maybe with Lincoln's thought is, as Leo says, um, the, the good in, quote, as many of the people uh, as possible to become owners. And you used the word uh, free f- free labor earlier. Yes. And that wasn't free in the sense of, like, without cost, like cheap. Exactly, yeah. But free in the tr- in the sense of, like, an Aristotelian Political sense. Freedom. Like, freedom, yes. Like, I, um, I, am, I am more myself as a person. Exactly. I'm, I'm so more I able think, to direct my ends. I think the way where, where Lincoln and Catholic social thought would differ from probably the conventional way of viewing economics, uh, even free market economics, is that I think Lincoln recognized that all economics is essentially political economics. And I think you see this in Aristotle and in Aquinas when they talk about economic matters, that the, 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 an economy serves people, not the other way around. And so the, the goal of an economy is to provide the goods that people need to survive. And so it's, it's less of a concern with what we would call fulfilling our desires and more about fulfilling our needs and in doing so and doing that in a way that is consistent with human dignity. Right. 
Uh, and so what we see now is, I think we, very much so that we live in, in a desire economy as opposed to a needs economy. And that's a kind of perversion of what, of what an economy is supposed to do, whether you look at it in an Aristotelian sense, in a Lincolnian sense, and certainly uh, in a Thomistic sense, that it's not doing what an economy is supposed to do. Which, which is um, essentially the premise of a, of a well-known book, Small is Beautiful. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that it, economics ought to serve the human person, yep. uh, not the other way around, as you put it. The, um, what's the author of that book's name? It's E.E. Uh, e. Uh, is it Schumacher? Schumacher. Yeah. He, he wrote this yeah. book. He was very taken with Catholic social teaching mm-hmm. with Rerum Novarum. And he, he writes this book, and he's accused of being a Catholic. He wasn't. Yeah. Um, he ended up converting later in life, but uh, just was really attracted to the to the um, just the authenticity of the ideas. Found them as as deeply true. Yeah. Well, um, I just want to say thank you so much. This is uh, it's been a delightful to to poke through your your book. Um, Lincoln is one of those figures for for Americans that is just. Um, deeply fascinating and i hope maybe in the future we could have you back on Absolutely. and i'd love to pose the question why are we all so attracted to abraham lincoln um but uh thank you so much for joining us on episode three of faith and politics we'll see you next time